welcome to episode 10 of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasselina. In this episode, we will be having a discussion with General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank on the recent article written by uh, General Hodges entitled The Black Sea or a Black Hole. This article has been published on the Center for European Policy Analysis, and I'd just like to read the introduction to the article, which was published January 21, 2021. What happens in the Black Sea doesn't stay in the Black Sea, Tihomor Stoichev, Bulgaria's ambassador to the United States, said. The Black Sea region, or the BSR, is where Russia, Europe, the Middle East, the Balkans, and the Caucasus come together region is at the center of four great forces. Democracy on its western edge, Russian military aggression to its north, Chinese financial aggression to its east, instability in the Middle East to its south. The BSR is, in short, the literal and philosophical frontier between liberal democracy and autocracy. It matters to the West and to the Kremlin. But U.S. and Western strategy in the region have been insufficient. Great power competition prevented great power conflict. Conversely, failure to compete and to demonstrate and protect interests in all domains can lead to power vacuums and misunderstandings that can, in turn, lead to an escalation of tensions and actual conflict. Russia uses its new generation or hybrid warfare to force NATO into an asymmetric contest thus avoiding many of the Alliance's greatest strengths. Challenging the Kremlin with military means only, in its perceived sphere of influence, reveals our lack of an effective long-term strategy, potentially leading to an escalation where Russian President Vladimir Putin's regime holds most of the cards. We need greater focus, vision, and willpower. This region must now be where NATO and the West compete holding the line against anti-democratic forces, taking the initiative, establishing our influence, and protecting our strategic interests. I do hope you'll join us for this episode. This time we'll be having a discussion with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, who holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center of European Policy Analysis joined SEPA in February 2018. A native of Quincy, Florida, General Hodges graduated from the United States Military Academy in May 1980 and was commissioned in the infantry. After his first assignment as an infantry lieutenant at Karlstadt, Germany, he commanded infantry units at the company, battalion, and brigade levels in the 101st Airborne Division, including command of the 1st Brigade Combat Team Bastogne of the 101st Airborne Division in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2003 to 2004. His other operational assignments include Chief of Operations for Multinational Corps Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2005 to 2006, and Director of Operations Regional Command South in Kandahar, Afghanistan, 2009 to 2010. General Hodges also served in a variety of joint and army staff positions to include tactics instructor, chief of plans, second entry division in Korea, 
aide-de-camp to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, Chief of Staff, 18th Airborne Corps, Director of the Pakistan-Afghanistan Coordination Cell on the Joint Chief, Joint Staff, Chief of Legislative Liaison for the United States Army, and Commander NATO Allied Land Khmer in Ismail, Turkey. His last military assignment was Commanding General, United States Army Europe, Wiesbaden, Germany, from 2014 to 2017. He retired from the U.S. Army in January 2018. I'm so pleased to have Dr. Stephen Blank join me again in this new series of maritime uh, studies. Uh, Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He's also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. Welcome to a new podcast on Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. The subject for this podcast uh, is the Black Sea or Black Hole. And I'm so pleased to be joined by Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Emma. Good to be here. Thank you for having us again. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. So um, this this podcast is actually based on an excellent paper uh, that uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges wrote for the Center on European Policy Analysis, the CEPA, which was published January 21, 2021. And I'd just like to start off with a brief quote, if I may, as an introduction. The Black Sea region, BSR, is where Russia, Europe, the Middle East, the Balkans, and the Caucasus come together. The region is at the center of four great forces. Democracy on its western edge, Russian military aggression to its north, Chinese financial aggression to its east, instability in the Middle East to its south. Why the Black Sea matters to Russia, we ask ourselves. And I'm quoting again from uh, Lieutenant General's uh, Hodges article. Russia's concerns are aggressive, but also defensive. It fears growing Western, and in particular Turkish influence in the BSR, which could turn the Black Sea into a NATO lake. Moscow wants to ensure that no new East-West energy corridor can bypass Russia or weaken its grip on oil and gas exports. The BSR is Russia's key strategic maritime domain now and into the future. Russia believes it can operate with near impunity in the BSR, building and then projecting capabilities into the Caucasus, the Balkans, the Middle East and beyond. The Kremlin's growing military capabilities in the BSR have, in effect, surrounded Turkey, while enabling Russian naval operations in the Eastern Mediterranean and its support for Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, 
and General Khalifa Haftar, the commander of the self-styled Libyan National Army in Libya. These Kremlin actions have also weaponized refugees, particularly from Syria, with a huge negative impact on European cohesion of budgets. The West needs to change the rules of the game, develop its own approach to hybrid warfare, use all the tools of national and alliance power, and compete across all four domains of the DIME, D-I-M-E, which is diplomacy, information, military, and economic framework. So, gentlemen, we're going to start off with this first segment of our podcast. We're going to discuss diplomacy. Now, German leadership is key. Time for Turkey, U.S.-NATO 2.2, or resolving the dispute between Serbia and Kosovo over the latter's recognition as an independent state and then maybe addressing Hungary's issues with Ukraine. So I'd like to open the floor, uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, please. Ellen, thank you. Um, I really believe that German leadership is key here uh, I believe for a couple so of reasons. Uh, number one, the uh, I think that Berlin is the only capital that can really influence Kremlin behavior. The Kremlin has zero respect for the EU as a whole, and, and most of the other nations, they, they're not impressed with anything they've heard lately. Mm. But the German economic leadership, uh, power, if you will, yes. and the sort of moral authority that Germany has earned over the last seven decades, yes. I think that if they use that, the Kremlin it will, will moderate their behavior somewhat. But they know that Germany is totally unwilling to do anything like that so far. Steven? Well, uh, Germany is also critical because it is the strongest European state. And if it were to uh, exercise its power on behalf of uh, peace in the Black Sea region in a more decisive manner than has been the case up till now, that would transform the situation. They're already doing uh, interesting things, for example, mediating the Greco-Turkish disputes in the Eastern Mediterranean that have an enormous impact on the Black Sea uh, as well. And of course, the big issue is whether or not Germany will step up to the plate in terms of its contribution to the defense of Europe in military terms. Uh, to the extent that the German government adds military power to its portfolio, under the rubric of NATO, that would make a very big difference uh, in the uh, contemporary equation of Europe. So far, they have not been willing to do it. There's an enormous struggle going on inside Germany, uh, whether or not to uh, become truly a major military actor in NATO beyond where they are today. Uh, so there is uh, a, a big gap, if you like, uh, with regard to German power in that respect in Europe. And I think that's one of the things the Kremlin has taken advantage of because it's, it believes that there's nobody in Europe other than the United States leading NATO to deter them from doing what they want to do. At a European, perhaps a European level, then France would be very grateful uh, for the, uh, you know, for Germany stepping up to the plate, both financially and, and, and militarily, would you say? Well, I think that the, uh, the the model was always supposed to be kind of a French-German duo 
that that is the engine for the European Union. Uh, it just hasn't played out that way because I think they both, they both have different views of what that model, uh, what it should do. Where they are in unison is in their total lack of willingness to confront the Kremlin and hold it accountable uh, for all of its illegal activity and, and violations of international law. I will say, to be fair, uh, thanks to German leadership, uh, the EU has kept sanctions in place on the Kremlin since the uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and those sanctions are not, are not unimportant but I would say that they actually are not consequential. Russia has not changed its behavior in any meaningful way as a result of those sanctions. I, I, would, also, I would also add that we have differences between France and Germany, uh, not to mention other countries uh, regarding the Kremlin, because they, both France and Germany see themselves as being potentially a privileged interlocutor for Russia. And both of them are not willing, but for different reasons in both cases, to confront Moscow about Eastern European issues of security issues. For example, the Steinmeier plan for Germany, uh, for Ukraine would essentially give Moscow uh, what it wants in Donbass and Ukraine and, and undermine Ukraine's integrity and sovereignty, but Ukraine won't accept it. And it's not even clear anymore that Germany and France would, although there are some uh, certainly unclear statements about this. But neither of them is prepared to advance any kind of major military support to NATO beyond what they're doing now in Eastern Europe and uh, contribute further to conventional deterrence that would restrain the hand of Moscow. All right, um, let's, let's move on then. How about Turkey? Uh, there's a lot of talk around uh, S-400 missiles and, you know, is Turkey still a valid NATO member? So is it time for Turkey-US-NATO 2.0, Ben? It absolutely is time. Uh, look, I, I lived in Izmir for two years as the commander of yes. NATO's Allied Land Command from 2012 to 2014. Incredible country, um, fantastic history, the, sure. the culture. <laughs> is is fascinating uh, and of course a, a brand new lieutenant could look at the map and immediately recognize the importance of Turkey from a geostrategic um, perspective. The, the problem is uh, they're a very difficult ally, they're frustrating, uh, they're easily offended, uh, but they also don't trust the West. Um, the, um, it's not just about the EU, but I mean, they don't trust the United States anymore either. We've made some decisions uh, such as giving weapons to the YPG to fight against ISIS uh, south of the border between Turkey and Syria. And, and this is a real problem uh, for the Turks to be able to uh, accept. And I personally think it was a mistake to, uh, to do that for, for tactical benefit at the cost of significant damage to a strategic relationship with a real NATO ally. Now, uh, the S-400 decision by Turkey is indefensible. It's absolutely uh, no way uh, will that system be allowed into NATO's uh, integrated air and missile defense, nor should it. Um, and, and the justification for uh, from the government in Ankara for doing it was that they wanted to buy Patriot, but the U.S. wouldn't sell it. That's absolutely <laughs> totally false uh, 
Of course, we wanted them to buy Patriot, uh, but we're not willing to give up the secret sauce. We don't do that with anybody that has Patriot. This is a common practice, you know, within most uh, international defense industry uh, transactions. This, so that was a that was not the real reason for it. Having said all that, the the relationship between the United States and Turkey should not be defined by S-400. And I, I would say, I agree. If you if you take the map and, and you put the Black Sea into the middle of the map, it's usually you know if, if you're in any NATO headquarters, the Black Sea and Turkey are down in the bottom right hand corner. If you move that to the middle of the map, it'll change completely how you view the region in terms of economic opportunity, uh, the role of Turkey, not just to help contain the the Black Sea fleet in the Black Sea, but also as a as a bulwark against uh, Iran and Islamic extremism. So I think, you know, if we think strategically, you have to think without passion. You have to think only about the map. Exactly. And, and, and I might say you're, you're very good in your article. You, you know, put a lovely map on. And, and once you, you look at the map, uh, things become very clear. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Stephen? Well, Ben, in it. In his paper, Ben said, and I couldn't agree more, there's no such thing as Black Sea strategy without Turkey. And as a trained historian, I look at this also in terms of the, ge the, the geography, geostrategic uh, issues and so forth. And uh, again, you have to look at the, the, this dispassionately. As Ben said, there's no such thing as a NATO Black Sea strategy without Turkey. With all the problems that we have today, not just Turkey and the Kurds, uh, Turkey and the S-400, Turkey's uh, unilateral seizure of waters off of the coast of Cyprus, which has enraged Greece and France, uh, uh, Turkey's behavior in the Middle East, which has angered a lot of governments. But the opportunities today to bring Turkey back into a viable strategic dialogue with NATO are present. And it is the task of statesmanship in the West to seize those opportunities and maximize potential benefits uh, for the alliance in this respect. Turkey and Egypt, who have been very much at odds, are now negotiating. Uh, Turkey has left the door open to a rapprochement with the United States, despite they're being upset about the Armenian Genocide Declaration and the S-400s. That doesn't make everything wonderful, but there's an opportunity here. In the last year alone, Turkish proxies have fought with Russia three times, or with Russian proxies, rather. Libya, Syria, Nagorno-Karabakh, and in all three cases, they defeated the Russian proxies and the Russian weapons. And that tells you something about Turkish defense industry. And you want that capability on your side. The Turks are very strong supporters of Ukraine and Ukraine's integrity and sovereignty. And their opposition to what Moscow just was doing, I think was very influential in getting Russia to announce that it was some of his soldiers were retreating, although most haven't and aren't. Those are opportunities to build a more durable, stronger relationship with Turkey, which takes account of the issues where we disagree, but it also creates a basis for consensus on vital issues to Turkish security. And there's no more vital issue to Turkish security than the Black Sea. 
than uh, than has been the case since our initial mistake in 2003, which was failing to give Turkey the NATO guarantee when we invaded Iraq. So uh, I think the opportunity is there despite all the problems and it ought to be seized. All right, excellent. So let's move on to this little dispute between Serbia and Kosovo. Um, I, you know, the, the latter of recognition of it as an independent state, which was a, a province of the larger Yugoslavia. Can we just get a couple of words on that, Ben? So somebody asked, well, what does Serbia Kosovo have to do with the Black Sea? Yet that's why you have to look at the map and think about the region. Exactly. Because uh, Romania, <clears throat> particularly now that our relationship with Turkey is so strained, uh, and Turkey is much more focused to their south than they are to their north, uh, Romania is becoming the center of gravity for the United States and for NATO in the Black Sea region. Uh, I think that's the president, Colin Stephen, probably. Uh, Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so when you look at the Black Sea region and you see that Romania is our center of gravity, uh, who's to the west of, of Romania? Of course, it's it's Serbia. And so what happens uh, in Serbia affects Romania's security and its ability to, to be that center of gravity for NATO and U.S. efforts in the Black Sea region. Of course, the Russians have the same map. And that's why they're doing all exactly. of this. <laughs> to uh, prevent any sort of reconciliation between Serbia and, and Kosovo or between Belgrade and Pristina. Uh, they, they use the church, the Orthodox Church as a weapon. Uh, they are doing all that they can to prevent that sort of recognition, which could invite then more Western integration, Western investment. So Serbia, and also, by the way, the Russians still have a seat, I don't get this, on the Danube River Commission. So th these are all tools that the Kremlin uses to influence what happens on the Black Sea away from the Black Sea. And that's why it's to everybody's advantage except the Kremlin that Serbia and Kosovo can resolve or, or move forward so that young people have, can think about the future instead of growing up remembering, you know, uh, the Battle of kosovo Polje all the time. That's great. Thank you, Ben. Stephen? I was trained as a historian, and if you know your European history, every Balkan crisis since 1789, and there was one back then, not just the French Revolution, is a crisis of the European state system. Therefore, when a problem arises in the Balkans, and the problem of Serbia and Kosovo is really just a continuation of the issues coming from the disintegration of Yugoslavia 30 years ago. That is a threat to the security of Europe as a whole. The greatest example of this kind of situation is World War I, as we all know. But now, problems in security, problems of ethnic relationships, governance issues, any weakness in a Balkan state is an invitation to Moscow to come in and unhinge the status quo, the status quo because it cannot accept the idea that the Balkan states will be integrated into Europe. Serbia-Kosovo issue is one of those issues coming out of these longer term uh, 
factors. It, Kosovo broke away from Serbia uh, when Serbia broke away from the Yugoslav state. Uh, the revolution, the re re repression Serbia then launched led to an international war in 1999 because has obtained its independence and many in Serbia refused to reconcile themselves to this in any way. So there are various issue, uh, plans out there to bring about a final reconciliation. Uh, and some of them might actually contribute more to Balkan insecurity than is the case now. But in the meantime, the unresolved nature of the Serb-Kosovar relationship and its impact across the Balkans because uh, of its impact on the other elements of the former Yugoslav state, Albania, for example, Croatia, Bosnia, which is still not settled, allow Russia to prevent what the French call the finalité, the finality of Balkan integration into Europe, in the EU and in NATO, which Moscow regards as a threat to its vital interests. And this is all connected with the Black Sea because Again, the main instrument by which Russia on a day-to-day -day basis plays this game, subverts good government, corrupts political leaderships, movements and institutions, is the revenue it gets from energy. Yes. And the energy issue is vital in the Black Sea region. The energy is a big piece of that. Uh, let, let's finish up this segment with uh, addressing Hungary's issues with Ukraine, Ben. So, of course, there's been a dispute uh, over the past couple of years now, or at least it's it's really come out in the last couple of years, over uh, Prime Minister Orban's desire from, from Budapest for a Hungarian ethnic population inside Ukraine to be able to be, to use their language and, and so on. And, and Ukraine has changed some language laws that I think was primarily aimed at uh, making Ukrainian the language, not right. Russian as an official language. Yes. And, and so uh, Prime Minister Orban has uh, used this, I think, a little bit. Of course, we're also in the 100th anniversary of the uh, uh, Trianon uh, Treaty. And uh, so these things have kind of conflated uh, the, the downside other than the fact that it's annoying between two neighbors uh, and it provides another opportunity for the for the Kremlin to stick their finger in there is that uh, because of this Hungary has used its ability as a NATO member to block uh, meaningful uh, conversation and efforts in the NATO Ukraine Council I mean there's, there's a structure uh, where things like Ukrainian membership or membership action plan or, or even doing basic things has been stopped by Hungary. So uh, that that's uh, it's unfortunate and that's why I think this this needs to be resolved so we can get on with much bigger issues associated with the Black Sea region. Very good. Thank you. Ben, Stephen, to finish up this segment. Well, as Ben said, this goes back to the Treaty of Trianon and, the, and for the Hungarian right wing, which Orban now incarnates, this has always been a red flag uh, and they play the nationalist card in order to uh, maintain power and popularity at home among ethnically aggrieved communities and they stir this thing up. But it is also they're playing Moscow's game and I think quite self-consciously they know they're playing Moscow's game. Everybody has told them that. Uh, but they're getting support from Moscow for this. 
So uh, you have a confluence here of, in Hungary of domestic and of external factors that lead the government to continue to do this. And it, it hobbles any effort to re, uh, integrate Ukraine in the West, which suits Moscow just fine. And it also undermines any F, any real sense of regional and, or sub-regional uh, security cooperation, which is a foundation upon which you can build larger building blocks with regard to European security. Great. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, so we finish up this first segment and we will move on to the second segment, which will be on information. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. And we're back for our second segment with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. It's a pleasure to have both of you today on, on this podcast. Now, we're going to continue our discussion, uh, and this segment will be about information. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm quoting directly from uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges' excellent article uh, about the uh, Black Sea region. So the West has a better story to tell, gentlemen, you'll tell me. Winning the hearts and minds of citizens through the ideals of individual empowerment and dignity, but we must live up to our own ideals and tell that story better. We must also revive our education programs. And then I have a little note to talk also about the Montreux Convention, but uh, let's get started, Ben. What can you tell us? Well, look, the, um, in modern uh, Russian new generation warfare, what some people call hybrid warfare, you know, the use of force is always a possibility from nuclear weapons to conventional weapons and every other type of force. But the weapon that they use the most, and frankly, uh, which they have used most effectively, is disinformation. Uh, trying to create distrust uh, inside our nations and between our nations to, to, to chip away at the uh, cohesion of NATO and the, and the cohesion between countries that generally share the same values. Uh, they also use this disinformation to cause us to lose trust in our own institutions. That's why uh, they go try to interfere with our elections. We know we, we know that this has happened in the United States. We know that they interfered with the Brexit. Uh, we know that they have hacked into the German Bundestag. And this kind of disinformation and in, in, in competition in the information domain goes on all the time. So uh, part of the resilience necessary to uh, resist that is that we need to make sure our own fellow citizens trust our election process, trust our judicial process, and that you have a free, independent, and very aggressive, active media that shines a light uh, that prevents corruption. When we don't, we're so vulnerable to Russian disinformation. The first step in doing all of that, though, is that we have to live up to our own talking points. Uh, we, we haven't done that very well. And, you know, pictures of the, uh, the uh, attempted insurrection on January the 6th, you can be sure that was played a million times all over Russia and in China. 
and, and used to highlight, look how messed up the Americans are. That makes it very difficult for us to compete effectively. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, I think the attack on the Capitol was a wake up call. Um, and, and as you rightly say, Ben, um, and it's, it's the same in the United States, in Europe, everywhere, there's a, there's a, there's a distrust factor. If you look at just the pandemic, the, the crisis that it's put uh, all and the stress it's put on the governing systems or governance mechanisms. And again, you know, do people trust the vaccine? So it's, it's really a, a test, I think, for not only democracies, but governance in general across the, across the planet. Thank you, Ben. Stephen. Well, to build on what you and Ben have just said, to give, this morning I heard on the radio that there was an international poll taken about democracy, and most of the people polled said that the United States was a force not working for democracy, which is inconceivable to anybody who knows the reality. But nevertheless, uh, the, the results speak for themselves as to the disenchantment of so many people all over the world with American uh, policy and values. So one of the greatest strengths the United States has always had is the belief that the United States stands for something more than just naked self-interest and, and, and greed. And uh, the message that came out of the Trump administration was, well, that's actually what we do stand for. And we don't really care about anybody else. And of course, this was played up and used uh, at home as well as abroad against against us. But it is the uh, nature of the threat that has to be realized. I mean, it is pervasive. Apart from the examples that Ben gave, Spanish referendum on, Cat on Catalonia, the Dutch referendum, the French presidential election where Macron was elected president, endless information warfare, strikes on critical infrastructure. Today, Belgium was taken out. We don't know by whom, but I, I think we can sort of guess who the usual suspects are here. And this is a day-to-day -day obsession of uh, Russian security agencies and the Russian government. They believe that information applied systematically steadily over a long period of time will erode both the internal and external cohesion of the alliance but it will also make military operations against russia inconceivable or infeasible because of the derangement of the societies that is taking place and since western societies have been far too open to not only Russian information media like RT, but to corruption in the form of Russian money, which is then invested and takes over media uh, conglomerates in the West, even in London. Or supports uh, political parties. Right, uh, then you have a very vicious circle going on. I agree. There's uh, there's a lot of uh, and thank you, Stephen. Uh, th there's a lot of um, with this. I, I want to say this this uh, pandemic, this this COVID pandemic, has really laid bare some of our uh, governance structures, uh, the governance inability to serve its people, and to create a mistrust. And it's not only, as I said again, it's not limited to to one geography. It's also globalization and, and a rising uh, nationalism and populism uh, that we're seeing 
for example, as we in France go to elections uh, next year, this is this is already starting. Uh, so uh, I would be very attentive uh, also to how these elections are being run, the security of the elections. Uh, again, the democratic process of being elected in, in France, we still have paper ballots. Um, and, and so, you know, we're saying, you know, maybe we're safe from cyber attacks. And, and then uh, some of the officials were saying, well, we need to modernize our system. But uh, as you both brightly brought up, uh, there, there is danger uh, with all this working from home culture, uh, also uh, about using and, and attacking, uh, getting cyber attacks or ransomware. And uh, it, it's a great threat to, to functioning institutions. All right, um, a little bit left on this subject, I believe that I had noted um, where, of course, um, the, can, can we just talk about the Montreux Convention? Because that's that's come up recently uh, in, in the Black Sea again, Ben, if I may. Yeah, so the, the Montreux Convention 1936 uh, was the agreement that gave Turkey sovereignty, the new Republic of Turkey, uh, after the Ottoman Empire collapsed, uh, gave Turkey sovereignty over the uh, so-called Turkish Straits, the Bosphorus, Sea of Marmara, and Dardanelles. And it uh, limits the, the type of warships, the size of warships, and the duration of their stay from non-littoral nations. So, for example, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, warships uh, above a certain size could not go into the Black Sea and uh, and they can only stay for 21 days. There's a whole process for doing this. And because of this, the Russians will always have numerical superiority. Now, I'm, I'm not against Montreux, actually. It, it's, it's actually, with Turkey, a NATO ally, being the, the power that administers it, it, it does offer some uh, advantages for the West as well. And, and we don't come close to using the number of days we could. I mean, probably less than 50% of the number of days that the United States Navy could have a ship in the Black Sea uh, is, is sort of where we are. And for sure, the Royal Navy, the German Navy, the French Navy don't come anywhere close either. So Montreux is not the problem. The problem is that we haven't developed a strategy for the region. And therefore, we don't have we don't have the Black Sea at a high enough priority, so that we can take limited naval assets and shift them from over here to the Black Sea. So that's uh, that that to me is, is the more important part. However, there I almost every week I will read an article of somebody trying to come up with a clever new way to get around Montreux, involving going up and down the Danube or. Of course, President Erdogan is, plan is going to build this big new canal, the Istanbul Canal. None of that changes Montreux. And, I was going to so, say, could you, could you elaborate on that? Because I've heard that he wants to create a separate parallel canal. And, and what does that change? And does it put it in danger, uh, the Montreux Convention? So I don't, believe, I don't believe it has any impact on Montreux because the Istanbul Canal will only connect the Black Sea down to Sea of Marmara you still have the Dardanelles. And, and so the, the Montreux is about ships on the Black Sea. Yes. Not how many uh, canals or, or, or so on there are. Now, what it will do, honestly, uh, I'm gonna be sound a little bit cynical. I think the Istanbul Canal actually is a big real estate venture. Uh, it's creating 
literally, I'm from Florida, so I know what I'm talking about, is creating <laughs> artificial waterways for fat cats to uh, in, in yacht basins and, and all of this. Now, to be fair, it will take some of the pressure off of the Bosphorus, which is quite narrow in certain places. Um, but there's a, uh, I, I, in my view, this has no impact on Montreux or on the strategic balance in the Black Sea. Oh, well, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, Stephen. Well, um, Ben may well be right, but there's a great controversy right now in Turkey because there's a lot of opposition to this canal where they claim that it will affect the Black Sea, uh, the Montreux uh, Treaty, uh, and that remains to be seen. But uh, the Montreux Treaty safeguards both Russian and Turkish security. Uh, if, if you talk to Turkish political figures, and I know Ben has done this as well, uh, the Montreux Treaty is regarded as a kind of holy writ in Turkey. Uh, they take it extremely seriously. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why there's such a controversy within Turkish politics today about this, because they think that those people opposed to this think it's going to change the treaty and therefore undermine Turkey's security. But it has been the basis on which Turkish security in the Black Sea, uh, which has always been at risk from Russia, uh, is preserved. And it has been a, the basis by which Russia can have security in the Black Sea and up until 2014, Ukraine as well. Problem is that Russia, by invading Ukraine and attempting in 2014, and perhaps now with its mobilization to cut Ukraine off from the coastline, has indicated that it really doesn't care much about international agreements and conventions. And it wants to use the Black Sea to dominate not only the Black Sea, but to create the basis for uh, its Mediterranean fleet to keep NATO out of the Black Sea, period. Uh, NATO, even though it is not pr probably using the, its maximum allotment of days, has been sending in more ships into the Black Sea. And every week, Ben and I are reading, uh, and other people are reading this, that the Russians are buzzing these ships, threatening them in some way. Or now, now the Russians have said, nobody can come in because we're doing exercises here for the next six months, which is clearly illegal. And uh, what this is an attempt to do is make the Black Sea a closed, Russian Sea, or to use the legal term, Mare Clausus, uh, because the Russians think of it as their own sea, Mare Nostrum, again, in legal terms. And this is a threat to the other littoral states and thus to the security of Europe. And since the other state littoral states are all NATO members, NATO has a vital interest here. All right. Yes, Ben? Yeah, if I, I could, I, I enjoy listening to Stephen practice his Latin uh, for all of us as well. No, your accent was okay, Stephen, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, so, you know, you have to give us... So, um, look, since we're talking about information competition, you know, and what's the connection with, with, with Montreux? Russia, this is about calling out the Kremlin when they violate or twist uh, international agreements. And they... Uh, a friend of mine, Mark Voyager, refers to it as lawfare, to try and use the law uh, in ways for which it was not intended. And so we have to, I think, find ways to, to get the initiative in this information domain, instead of always whining or complaining about their latest violation, what are we doing? So for me, an example would be uh, no ship 
that sails out of a Crimean port should be allowed to dock in any other port because uh, during the time of President Poroshenko, he declared all the ports of Crimea closed after it was uh, invaded and illegally occupied by the Russians. So he said, okay, Sebastopol, y'all, all these ports are closed. So that means then that any ship that goes in there takes on cargo uh, or uh, drops off cargo, when it leaves, it is contraband. It's, it's operating illegally. So all the maritime insurance companies should refuse to insure any vessel that goes there. And those vessels should not be allowed to dock in any Turkish port or Bulgarian port or any port anywhere. So this is part of, this is how you compete. Now, some people might kind of roll their eyes like, because it's kind of tedious, but this is part of the overall countering the Russian narrative that Crimea is de facto Russia. I even had a very, very super well-educated German uh, professor tell me one time here, he said, come on, Ben, Crimea has always been Russian. Said, no, it's not. But there are enough really well-educated people that are willing to say that. And of course, this is the Kremlin narrative. So that's when I talk about competing in the information domain, you have to challenge all of those kinds of things or when they when they block the Kerch Strait, okay? This this Kerch or Azov is an agreement between Ukraine and Russia. Yes. So Russia is abrogating that treaty when it does things like you know build this bridge, yeah, block the straits. Exactly. So this is where we have to get out there in the information space and compete on this. All right. All right, gentlemen, uh, we will uh, end this segment on that note and we will then move on to our next segment. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. We're back with segment three with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Will. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining me again. So this is the third segment of this podcast, and now we're going to talk about military affairs. The BSR, the Black Sea region, is essential to Western security and stability. These are, again, quotes that I'm taking from uh, Ben's excellent paper. The Alliance must develop a strategy that places the BSR, as, as Ben rightly said in the, in the previous segment, in the middle of the geostrategic map. Turkey should be NATO's center of gravity in the region. In short, to medium term, NATO should therefore designate Romania, Ben, as you so rightly mentioned previously, and we'll develop it a little bit more in this segment, as a center of gravity due to its geographic position, uh, proximity to other allies, as well as Ukraine and Moldova, and its robust modernization efforts and strategic transportation infrastructure. All right, and then you, you, you develop a 12-step program, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to discuss. So, Ben, uh, Romania as uh, uh, you know, a center of gravity uh, in the Black Sea? It really ought to be Turkey, of course, given uh, its its size, uh, its military capability. Um, you know, I uh, I was in 
Ankara just a few years ago and I was speaking with the senior officer of the Turkish General Staff. I said, sir, how's it going? He says, Ben, I tell you what, I wake up in the morning, I've got Russia to the north, Iran, Iraq, Syria to the south, the Caucasus to the east and the Balkans to the west. It's a hell of a neighborhood. And so, <laughs> You know, when he said that, it was like, well, of course, it's so obvious, but I hadn't thought about it that way. Yes. We always have Turkey down in the bottom right-hand corner of the map, and it, it sort of affects how we think about things. Exactly. And when you, but when you move it up, it's so clear that a brand new lieutenant can see that how important Turkey is. Unfortunately, as we discussed previously, discussed previously, Turkey doesn't trust the West. The West doesn't trust Turkey. There's there's a lot of friction here. And Turkey is reluctant to do too much that changes the status quo in the Black Sea region. So in the near and midterm, I think that we have to look to Romania as the center of gravity because of number first and foremost, it's geography. It's right there sure. uh, in a place where um, it has uh, allies and mostly all around it. Um, the United States, of course, has on any given day at least a thousand soldiers there at a place called, we call it MK, Akil Kaganachanu, which is a, a Romanian uh, air base and international airport near Constanta, which is also where NATO's Black Sea Air Policing Mission uh, yes. is based. Mm -hmm. And we've got about a thousand U.S. Army that's there on a rotational basis. And the U.S. Air Force has just moved a uh, MQ-9 Reaper squadron there to Campiaturzi, which is another Romanian air base. So it's it's the place where we need to be to to begin to really compete in the military domain uh, against the Kremlin in the Black Sea region. If you think about how Russia, where it uses force and where it doesn't, it's like there's a new black or a new Iron Curtain across the Black Sea. Right. They will use force against Georgia, Ukraine, and Moldova, but not against Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. So it, they, they don't want to get into a fight with us. So we've got to figure out how do we turn that to our advantage. All right, thank you so much. Stephen. Unmute, Stephen. Unmute, um, okay. Um, everything Ben says is absolutely uh, straight on, spot on. I've talked to Romanian diplomats who are, uh, who are very concerned about the Russian threat in the Black Sea because you know, Russia is now the neighbor of Romania's oil fields. Uh, the Russians do overflights. This has not been something that people want to talk about, but it, it's they feel threatened. And that's why they have turned to the United States and NATO and why we are there and why we should be there. And we should be in the Black Sea in greater force and uh, constancy. Uh, in his paper, Ben has laid out, and I agree fully, some of the things that must be done. NATO must dedicate a devoted uh, command and control center in the to the Black Sea, and it needs to be staffed with soldiers on a permanent basis, land, sea, and air, and air defense power. It is also the case that we need to be much more active in patrolling and getting uh, acquainted with, or what the professionals call achieving uh, domain awareness or situational awareness of the Black Sea because, again, this is where Moscow is used for us. And it is the basis also for Moscow's power projection into the Middle East and beyond. So, again, it's something we need to keep in mind. And we need also to sustain and help Ukraine, first of all, reform its military economy and government 
to strengthen its own capabilities, but also to deter Russia so that threats like what we are just seeing in the last few weeks do not occur again. And that uh, Moscow does, uh, cannot threaten European security. Ukraine is integral to European security. Everybody who has studied this issue should know it or does know it and acknowledge it. And it is uh, the same thing with uh, the Black Sea littoral. So this is an area where NATO has to be much more involved on a permanent basis. It's not just the United States, but the United States is the only power that has the resources and capacity to lead this operation. And that also means, as we said in the first segment, a restored strategic dialogue with Turkey, because again, without Turkish participation, nothing works there. I could also add that as a result of the uh, Russian crisis that they generated in this March and April, Romania has revived the idea that it had five years ago for a Black Sea littoral group, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, to patrol the Black Sea, keep it calm, and make sure that nothing untoward happens there. Uh, the Russians influenced Bulgaria to kill it five years ago. But now Bulgaria is electing a new government. There have been a lot of scandals uh, about Russian corruption and particularly in the energy field in Bulgaria and influence there. Uh, Turkey's relationship with Russia is not quite what it was before and that gives us opportunities. So maybe with United States blessing, we can actually achieve something in the Black Sea. All right, Ben. So obviously this has been uh, the security uh, issues and, you know, with uh, uh, Crimea, uh, Donbass uh, have really heightened the level of, of attention to, to the Black Sea. Uh, and uh, what, what, what way do you see going forward now, like as you rightly mentioned in the last segment, I believe with the previous segment, that there is a Ukraine uh, NATO group within NATO as there was also a Russia group in NATO. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? So uh, there is this thing called the NATO-Ukraine Council, right. uh, which is um, how they, they have a formal presence in Brussels, the Ukrainians do, and it's the mechanism by which you talk about things like such as what would be required for uh, to develop a membership action plan, etc. Uh, encouraging Ukraine to achieve NATO standards and, and all of those kinds of things. It's, it's been limited, of course, because Hungary has uh, used its uh, ability as a member of the North Atlantic Council to, to restrict it. Having said that, uh, there's several things that we could be doing in the region short of membership. You know, number one is recognizing what's going on is not something new. It's not something that it was a, like a spike in, in normality. It's just the latest development since uh, Russia's invasion of Georgia that where they are right now. I was going to say, George, Georgia was next. I wanted you to touch on Georgia as well, please. So uh, all of the all of the activity that uh, Russian Federation forces undertook here over the last several weeks was just the latest step. Um, I don't think too many of these troops are actually going back to the barracks. We still have the Zapata exercise coming up. Uh, I anticipate things are going to get much worse here over the next few months, uh, unless the West that's United States, Germany, France, UK, and others make it very clear that we are not going to tolerate Russian use of force 
against a European country. And hopefully if Germany and France will step up and uh, demand Russia allow the OSCE, for example, to do its job in monitoring. Right. And, uh, and if we use other ways to, to compel, then I think we can avoid a conflict. But so far, I'm unfortunately not very optimistic. So what does that mean for us in a military perspective? Yes. First of all, we have got to improve our intelligence uh, collection, uh, what Stephen uh, referred to earlier as a domain awareness. Uh, there is no one place in the Black Sea region uh, certainly not an allied place where you can walk in and look on the board and have 100% awareness of everything that's in the air, on the water, and or in the periphery. Uh, there's no reason for that except that we haven't taken the steps to create it. And I think um, since Turkey will uh, has is not interested in seeing another NATO headquarters in the Black Sea region, then perhaps we put a an intelligence fusion center in Romania where uh, you can bring in everything from satellite to drones to ships to land-based systems to bring together all of this information so you can have a picture to, to prevent uh, surprise. What, what we call the unblinking eye. The, the technology is there, we just haven't put it in right. practice yet. We also need to, I think, uh, given the discussion we just had about Montreux, the fact yes. that none of our allies can significantly increase the size of their navies, I'm talking about Romania and Bulgaria, of course, and uh, even Ukraine and Georgia, um, and Turkey's navy is focused primarily on another NATO ally, Greece, um, <laughs> then how do, we ex how do you expand naval capability of those Black Sea nations? And there is growing capability in unmanned systems. The United States Navy uses them a lot. And I think uh, this would be ideal for Romania and Bulgaria, for example, and even for Georgia and Ukraine to put unmanned systems that help with anti-submarine capabilities, mm -hmm. uh, mine and countermine capabilities. And these are much cheaper. You don't need all the infrastructure. The, the, the last thing I'd mention is exercises. Um, there are already two or three big exercises that happen in the region each year. I would like to see us grow these exercises. And of course, ours are always transparent. Russian observers are always invited, which they don't do, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but to combine the Ukrainian-hosted Seabreeze exercise, the Georgia-hosted Noble Partner exercise, and the Romanian-hosted uh, Sabre Guardian exercise, into something kind of on the scale of what the Russians do with their Zapad or Kamikaze yes. exercise. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Stephen? Yes. Uh, everything there is necessary, desirable, uh, has should be done. Uh, the question is the political will, as always, and uh, that has been uh, absent until now. But beyond what Ben has suggested in the military, I would also talk about what we need to be doing to support Ukraine against Russia. And uh, I'm uh, I'm taken by the idea that what we ought to be doing with Ukraine is something on the order of the Lend-Lease program of World War II, where we lend Ukraine surplus naval air defense, air and, and, and uh, anti-artillery uh, and uh, counter-radar and counter-mortar capabilities that we don't need anymore, that other NATO states don't need anymore, and that Ukraine can actually use, that's critical, in return for access to Ukrainian air and naval bases. Uh, 
that would allow us to keep a, a, a permanent intelligence and uh, a physical presence in the Black Sea. It would also, I think, help deter the Russians from their moves on the Strait of Azov and Kerch Strait. I would actually like, I'm actually writing something where I call for what we uh, talk about freedom of navigation operations, phone ops in the Black Sea and in those uh, bodies of water, because what Russia is doing is, a, is an outright violation of international law. And if we don't contest it, it becomes a precedent for the kinds of things China is doing in the South China Sea, that Turkey has done in the Eastern Mediterranean, and that Russia wants to do in the Arctic, sure. which will all be against NATO, not just ours, but against NATO and our other allies in the Pacific's interests. So I, I think there is a, a, a large area of activity which we can undertake without creating a new conflict, but where we'd be within our legal and political rights and based on you know sound precedents in deterring Russian aggression. All right. Ben, did you have anything to add? Well, only that this is probably the only place where I disagree with Stephen a little bit, uh, with all due respect. You know, there is this desire by all of us to give stuff to Ukraine. I mean, we we are so anxious to see these sure. uh, see the Ukrainians be successful. I've been so impressed with the courage of their soldiers. I mean, they stopped the Russians. Um, uh, and but it's also useful to remember that Ukraine was the defense industry heart of the Soviet Union. They right. they have capacity. Yes. They I have visited the wonderful tank plant in Kharkiv just a few years ago. And I, I saw sparks flying and, you know, it was so cool. They were working on, this was the birthplace of the famous T-34 tank. And I mean, it for me as a history nerd, not a trained historian, but a history nerd, I was in <laughs> heaven seeing that and, and watching them do battle damage repair on uh, Ukrainian army tanks. And then across the hall, I see a long row of brand, I mean, you could smell, they had that new car smell, brand new tanks. And I said, whoa. Are those going to the front? And they go, oh, no, no, these are going to Thailand. I said, what? You're, you're humping the leg of the United States to give you javelin, and you're exporting top quality tanks? And they go, yeah, well, these, these are export tanks. I'm like, <laughs> so Ukraine does not need a lot of stuff from us. Um, they have got to figure out, they've got to fix their own internal economics, uh, put more uh, transparency on the defense ministry's budget right now the rada has zero visibility of where all the money goes zero and so you can't stop corruption you can't fix uh, incompetence and inefficiency uh, i i do think there are a couple of things where i would agree with stephen that uh things like counter fire radar secure communications um, and some anti-ship um, or air defense systems but all the other stuff you know, you give them more ships, that means they have to have more infrastructure. And right. they, they don't even have the infrastructure to train and run and maintain what they have now. And I think giving them a lot of vehicles that are not uh, the kind that, that where they already have the maintenance repair parts. For exactly. Yeah. I, I don't I honestly don't don't think that's helpful. Um, so I, that that's probably the one in a thousand thing I would disagree with my friend on. All well, right. Uh, last last words, Stephen. Last words. Let me come back to this. I mean, I I, I, I I and Ben have talked about this, and I agree with him about the situation in Ukraine. What is needed in Ukraine when we give them capabilities, so that they, these are capabilities they actually cannot create on their own and that they can actually use on the battlefield.
So the kinds of things Ben was talking about is what ex exactly I am. I'm not giving them a, a blank check to just, you know, give them anything they want and so on, because they, it won't be used. But there are discernible needs uh, against Russian artillery, uh, air defenses, anti-ship capabilities and so on, where we can and have been useful and other NATO allies can be as well. And that would be a uh, major uh, benefit to the Ukrainian army and government. And in return for the uh, uh, lease uh, aspect of the lend lease program. All right. So I think, well, actually, Ben, we're on the same page. All right. Well, that's a good way to end this segment, gentlemen, and we'll be able to get more into the economic uh, sector, which we'll touch, of course, on energy, which is all related to everything we're talking about. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. And we're back for segment four with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges and Dr. Stephen Blank. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a real pleasure. So we're going to finish up our, our podcast uh, on the economic issues. And uh, I'd just like to, you know, I've noted down a few important points, Ben, from your article. I'd just like to sort of uh, frame uh, the discussion for this last segment. So. Of course, a strong economy is critical to building security and stability, stability pardon me, in the Black Sea region. And then there's a number of uh, organizations, uh, the BSEC, the BSTDB Guam, uh, the Danube River Commission, and, and then you suggest a Marshall Plan for the BSR. Uh, there's also the DFC and the Three Cs Initiative. I'd like to hear about that, Ben. And then of course, uh, inherent uh, in any economic program or initiative, of course, in this particular area is energy security and cooperation. And of course, the great potential there is for positive developments, uh, of course, LNG, uh, nuclear, and then uh, lastly, on, on, a, on a final note, um, creating business opportunities for the American Central European Business Association. Ben, would you like to get us started? Yeah, Ellen, thank you. Uh, I really see, um, economic investment is kind of the third leg of a three-legged stool with um, diplomacy and military cooperation being the other two but the economic investment is essential and i say that because if you get say german and dutch and british and french companies investing in georgia for example or in romania in ukraine uh, then the parliament the bundestag uh, from those countries starts paying attention to what's going on there. But right now, nobody has, uh, almost no German companies of any real size or French or even British are invested in, this, in the South Caucasus, for example. So except in an altruistic sense, they don't care. They, there's no skin in the game. There's no investment. Yes. In, and so uh, because of that, it's we're not very likely to get them to push back on what the Kremlin is doing there and of course the last thing the last thing that the Kremlin wants in the Black Sea region is anybody else trying to develop uh, the region economically they want to control it themselves as their own sort of uh, launching pad for uh, everything that they're doing uh, in, in the region and south of there 
Plus, most of their grain export goes out through the Black Sea. Yes. They're not interested in east-west uh, east economic development. If you could step back from the map, there are three sort of big economic corridors uh, between Eurasia and Europe. Mm -hmm. One goes through Russia, one goes through Iran, and one goes through the South Caucasus across the Black Sea. So, of course, the Kremlin does not want to have uh, that central corridor bypassing them, whether we're talking about energy right. or rail cars of, of Chinese sure. uh, goods or even telecommunications networks. So that's why I think if we can find ways to incentivize investment, both by American but also others, then we have a chance to improve security and stability in the region. Excellent. Stephen? Well, Ben is absolutely right. And uh, it's necessary to do this in at the same time as you have programs that will strengthen the ability of these states to be receptive and welcoming to investment. Uh, we have the case of Georgia, for example. They were trying to build this major port at Anakli, uh, and due to their own political uh, machinations, the, the whole project fell through, and it undermined the whole idea of Georgia being a major entrepot on the way to Europe, which would fit into the whole idea of a corridor, as Ben has talked about. I have a plan myself with regard, uh, that I'm writing up right now with regard to energy, because the opportunity is there for the West to do this. The Clinton administration understood this. Yes. And they did it. If you remember the Baku Chehan oil pipeline. Yes. Because I was aligned to a vision, I suspect, of great, that brings all these countries closer to Europe. And by doing these things and using organizations like the Three Seas Initiative and getting the EU to put a lot of skin in the game, we can create integrated networks of energy pipelines not only from the Caucasus, but from the Eastern Mediterranean, because Germany, if Germany can get Greece and Turkey to mediate their issues, and you open that up, investors will then help see that, will see that it's a, a more peaceful uh, environment. They may help build a pipeline to Greece, that or, or to Turkey, to, to Greece, as the case may be. That gas will start going to Eastern Europe. You build the infrastructure within the Balkans, which is what the Three Seas Initiative is all about and you can bypass a lot of Russian gas and reduce, because you'll never eliminate it, but reduce the power of Russia to use gas to interfere with governance, corruption, and subversion of states in and around Central and Eastern Europe. I have to say, one of my first speeches on the international speaking circuit was in 2013, and it was about securing the periphery of Europe, how that could be done. Uh, and the investments, and I lay, laid out, and it's in one of my books, I can't remember which one it is, but, you know, about how much, you know, Europe has invested uh, in, in many mechanisms to try to, um, you know, bring good governance uh, practices. Uh, if you look at the Doing Business Index, for example, um, countries have to be at a certain level of, of transparency, as, as both of you said, uh, and attractive. Uh, for investment. So uh, obviously, and I followed Ukraine very carefully, of course, that at the time of my book, I believe in 2015, they'd only undertaken seven out of 63 reforms that they were supposed to do in that particular uh, year. So um, yes, uh, definitely there's, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, ben, let, let's continue because there's a lot of uh, different mechanisms and frameworks that, you, that you've laid out in your article. And then of course, this Marshall Plan for the Black Sea region. 
So the, um, the United States um, has a, an agency called DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, that uh, has strong bipartisan congressional support. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a mechanism, an agency, but uh, a mechanism for directing aid into countries that uh, attract U.S. business investment. And this is not just in the uh, in the sense of you know third world developing nations, but the legislation gives DFC the ability to put money in places like Georgia, like yes. Romania, like Bulgaria, that are not third world still developing nations. But if you uh, can attract U.S. business there, That's it right. enhances stability and security. It enhances uh, well, it's it's competition. You know. I, Look, I, I don't blame small countries for accepting gigantic loans from the Chinese because they all need infrastructure. And then of course the problem is, then they're trapped. So we've got to compete. Instead of threatening them, we've got to compete and offer better opportunity for developing infrastructure, which right. will then help business. The, uh, the Three C's initiative is a great uh, concept that is intended to increase uh, vertical north-south uh, infrastructure development both for transportation networks as well as energy uh, as Stephen said to to help them to wean them off of total dependence on Russian energy sources so of course it's called the three seas because it's the Baltic Sea Black mm -hmm. Sea and the Adriatic Sea all of these things seem to me it, the idea of a, uh, of a of a new Marshall Plan um, the reason for this, none of these countries in Central and Eastern Europe benefited from the Marshall Plan after World That's War true. II. That's uh, true. The Soviet Union did not want that. And so the Baltics, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Czech, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, obviously Ukraine, Georgia, none of them benefited. And the United States uh, spent a significant amount of money, investment in UK and Germany, France, others, to help them recover, not just because we're the good guys, but because it was to our advantage. Of course. To develop markets, uh, to uh, help counter Soviet aggression. That's why the idea of a, of a second Marshall Plan, um, to me, has such appeal. Sure, and, and especially you bring up a very good point. Um, you know, the, all these other countries that were in the last round of the European Union gaining membership in the European Union and then subsequently in NATO, um, they were still behind the Iron Curtain. And, and we see that even in Europe today, where the salaries still are well inferior of what European salaries, for example, are. And development, infrastructure, roads, as you rightly point out, these are you know important parts of, of building up an economy and, and making it stand on its own, not to mention the governance, uh, political formations, um, and, and I would even mention education, which we sort of briefly touched on last time, but as former adjunct uh, in Paris business schools, you know, I had many uh, students coming from these Eastern European countries and I told them, they said, oh, we want to stay in Paris. I said, no, go back home, <laughs> go back home and, and try to do something useful and, and bring, bring your country forward. Uh, it, it can only benefit. It would be a shame if they wouldn't benefit from your expertise and everything you've learned here, here in Paris. So, uh, Stephen. We have the opportunity now to do these things. And that's what's critical. We have mechanisms such as the EU's investment funds. Yes. We have the opportunity to build what is called the Southern Gas Corridor, 
Yes. Which would go from the Caspian, which is at least Azerbaijan and if possible Central Asia, if they can work those details out, all the way to Europe. And uh, as far as gas goes, for example, the Eastern Mediterranean and Ukraine. Let me just give you two examples here of what can be done. If the Ukrainian gas and oil sector is reformed, Ukraine would then be able to support itself and even export to Europe. And the pipelines are already there for some sure. of that. At the same time, if we could build pipelines, let's say connecting Greece and the big terminal in Kirk Island, Croatia, mm -hmm. which then connects to Austria, Italy, and Germany, and we were to solve the East Mediterranean problem within a few years, assuming that pipeline is built there, once there's peace, you could get that gas all the way up to Germany, Austria, and Italy. And the Italians are very interested in it. They're partners in the Eastern Mediterranean energy program. So there are mechanisms in place. What is needed is a vision and political will to spend the money on sound investments that will integrate North, South, and East, West, right. telecommunications, energy, transportation, infrastructures. Three Seas Initiative is a wonderful mechanism if it can be used. And it's going to have to come from Washington. It's not going to come from anybody else. Mm -hmm. Not even Brussels sees these things yet. But if Washington leads, I have no doubt that Brussels will be galvanized and other agencies will be too. And it is a perfect complement because it improves it creates greater prosperity, it stimulates further investment, it improves governance and security, it also gets uh, builds up the transportation infrastructure so we can defend Europe better by moving people and machines to the front if a crisis breaks out, and it will counter Russia's ability to play games in Central and Eastern Europe. Okay. And that's what's critical. Let's let's finish up uh, because time goes by so quickly. Um, energy security, we sort of touched on it. I'd also like to talk about LNG and nuclear, especially in this Green Deal, European Green Deal, the push towards renewables and clean energy. Uh, ben, would you like to weigh in, please? Well, first of all, it was a real uh, successful effort by our former ambassador in Romania, Ambassador Adrian Zuckerman, to uh, helped the United States beat out the Chinese for this uh, nuclear power plant uh, renovation project there mm. in Praova. Th this was hard work and um, frankly the government was not leaning forward that way so they, it took Ambassador Zuckerman figuring out how to how to uh, pull this together. This should be routine business for the United States to compete to get these kinds of projects uh, not by threatening people or by putting sanctions on people, but by offering something better. You know, I don't like Nord Stream 2 for all the reasons that, that um, it's been criticized, but I hate the idea of putting sanctions on one of our most important allies uh, when we need them for so many other things. Why, can't, why can't, aren't we competing? I mean, I'm not naive, but I mean, seriously, we the idea of competing uh, to offer American gas or finding other gas that's cheaper sure. than what or closer Christians are able to uh, uh, provide. One last thing, Belarus has a just opened up the Ostrovets nuclear power plant. This is in the southwest corner of Belarus. Of course, this place was built by the same people that brought you Chernobyl. And uh, you can be sure that everybody that lives in Vilnius 
is absolutely worried to death because they are only 30 kilometers away from Ostrovets. And if there's any problem, people in, in uh, Vilnius are going to be the ones to suffer. And of course, you've also, I mean, nobody has any confidence in, in Russian maintenance and supervision of these uh, power plants. So this, this is part of why uh, nuclear uh, security, uh, energy security is so important so that they have options other than what the Kremlin brings. Of course, Stephen. Yeah, the same thing is true now. Uh, there's a major nuclear contract up in the Czech Republic. And now in the Czech Republic, because of the recent revelations as to uh, Russian criminality, uh, in, in the Czech Republic connected with uh, uh, efforts to do the same thing in Bulgaria, and these are linked. Uh, there's an opportunity there for American or, or European firms to get it, to compete and get that contract. Uh, Bulgaria also, uh, there should be opportunities now because of the, for the same reasons. Uh, I'll give you another example. Albania has major, has laid out a major energy program for the future, which it cannot do by itself. It's going to need foreign investment. And it is really critical because if you can build a pipeline through Albania that will connect the pipelines that already exist in Greece to the terminal in Croatia and get that gas going from the southern gas corridor all the way to Greece and then up north to Croatia or from the eastern Mediterranean, you can checkmate the Russians that way. This is a great opportunity for the United States or for our allies or for a consortium thereof. So these are their opportunities are there they have to be seized. The imagination and vision has to be driving the policy. Yeah, it, it, if I could, Please. This, is not, this is not just about American companies making money. I mean, you know, frequently when I complain to my German friends about North Stream 2, they go like, well, look, it, it's cheaper gas than what you guys, you know, want to provide. Yeah. And, and they immediately couch it in terms of that this is all about American gas. And, and I would say that and this, I guess this is the whole point of this excellent podcast series that you have, Ellen, is the idea of a strategy that encompasses diplomacy, information, yes. and economy, not just military, that ties these things together, that we are competing in the Black Sea region so that uh, young people have opportunity. They want to stay home, exactly as you talked about. They want to stay there yes. at home and they're not so vulnerable to Russian disinformation and the leverage that Kremlin use, uh, uses through gas and the threat of force. That you, You've underlined it very well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a fantastic opportunity to, to first of all, to meet you, Ben. Uh, it's been a real privilege. Uh, Stephen, thank you. Thank you once again uh, for, for participating and bringing someone uh, so very interesting on board. I've really enjoyed this discussion, as I hope you have, gentlemen. This ends our segment four. And thank you again for participating. Thank you for having us. It's a real privilege. Thank you. It's great.